All right, let's do this. Peanut, if you're staying in the room, no talking. Hey, everyone. Michael here. Sasha and I are getting ready to travel to Atlanta to record with some great guests. So Sasha is currently bouncing back and forth between Woodstock and Manhattan just to uh, tie up some loose ends. So she can't be here for this introduction. And this introduction actually has to be super short because Sasha's guest today is John Gossage, and they are going to discuss his long and storied life in photography. So this episode is a bit longer than usual. And this episode might sound a little different from others in that it's less process and practice and more about John's encounters with some historical towering figures such as Lisette Modell and Edward Steichen. And John is not shy about describing some negative interactions as well. Of course, Sasha could not have a conversation with John Gossage without asking about the pond, so they have a really wonderful conversation about that legendary work. But before I let you go, PhotoWork is sponsored by Picturehouse and the Small Darkroom. Picturehouse has been providing high-end lab, darkroom, and creative retouching services to the fields of art, publishing, fashion, and communication arts worldwide. They are committed to providing excellence in photographic services to professional and amateur photographers alike. And we love them. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening. And here is Sasha's conversation with John Gossage. John Gossage, welcome to the Photo Work Podcast, I have to say. It is truly an honor to have you on. I don't get to say that that often without it seeming over the top, but with you, I think I can I can get away with it. Hey, um, hey wait, wait, wait till you hear what I have to say. You know, it, it, may, it may not be an honor at all. In my end, I want to thank you for sorry. inviting me on. <laughs> no, it is real. It is an honor. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to set you up for too much pressure, but I, I have a feeling you're you're going to come through. So. You know, we start every podcast with your background and, you know, where you grew up and all that fun stuff and and when you started making pictures. So if you could tell us about that, please. Uh, I mean, you know, I'm I'm older now, you know, and I go back a long way in a funny way in that I, I was I was born and raised on Staten Island, one of the boroughs of New York, for those who aren't close to us. And uh, I started photographing incredibly young. I mean, I had my first professional assignment for the Staten Island Advance, the local newspaper to shoot sports, when I was 14. So I've been doing this for 63 years. Uh, You know, so even even more than the age, starting really that young. And also, the, the great benefit for me was being in New York City because... At some point, probably about 14, I realized that the pictures I was seeing that mystified me and compelled me in the photography magazines, which is what I looked at as a kid, you know, to learn what you're doing, mm-hmm. that a lot of the photographers were in the same city I was. So I basically, and, and there was no education, you know, back then, you, you know, outside of technical stuff, which a, a neighbor showed me how to, I bought his darkroom equipment, my parents did. And basically, I looked, you know, he sort of taught me how to develop film and, and I got a, 
a little manual. But aesthetically, it was like there was sort of two things. It was Lizette Modell and Alexei Bradovich. And those were, you know, sort of short courses. And that was the only people that talked about how do you mm-hmm. make your photographs get better? So what I did is, as this obnoxious photo child, I uh, went around, for one thing, brought my pictures to the photographers whose names I could look up in the phone book and ask them if I could come by and have them tell me how to get better. I mean, that, uh, that's am- I mean, I know that about you, that you did that, and it's re- <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, it's so incredible. <laughs> I like that attitude. <laughs> well, it was all it, it was all you had. I mean, it was you know, and and also, I mean, the given to to the photographers I asked, you know, right, is that right. you know they were going to be you nice don't kick to you. puppies, right? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like here's this <laughs> child with pictures, you know, like outside. There, it was only one guy who we, we will go unnamed, who is. Uh, probably not even known to most people who was actually mean to me. But outside of that, everybody else from well, Cardiac Brussels. one like photo. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, that's sort of how all of that started. And uh, oh, and uh, one of the givens too that, that sort of affected things and how I worked, I got thrown out of high school when I was 16, you know, for uh, which, you know, n- n- nobody even had a name for it back then. Uh, I have a, a degree of a learning disability, a kind of dyslexia, mm-hmm. which is based not on reading or anything, but it's based on writing. All I can tell people is that the feeling is like you're a perfectionist with no ability and you get mm-hmm. sort of frozen and my head would go faster than my hand could write. So basically, whenever I had to write a paper or something for school, I just didn't go. You know, this I, is a common theme with artists. You exactly, know. you know, yeah. and general bad attitude, which you know sort of yeah. go, go, goes with we, we basically goes with the territory. And yep. the next year after I was thrown out, I through Magnum, who was I was sort of the mascot of, I photographed the same high school for Esquire magazine. Oh my, fantastic! You yeah. know, but it, so it was sort of a, a very early. High speed move. I won the national teenage photography contest from Camera Thirty Five magazine. Had my first one man show in New York at this thing, sort of cooperative called a Camera Infinity, if I remember right. Uh, when I was fifteen, got reviewed in the New York Times. And and what I had is I had another. I had a like a a rival, I guess, which was Stephen Shore. Who was Stephen was the, basically in the same given of everything. The the wonderkind. Yeah, yeah, you know. I mean, we hated each other. I think. I, mean, I think I could say that for Stephen. You know, <laughs> as, as kids will do. You you're getting stuff that I want, and you're getting, and you over there have right. got what I want. He got pictures in the Museum of Modern Art. I got a one person show in New York. We glare at each other across the room when we occasionally <laughs> meet at openings. You know, it's stupid. I mean, we're dear friends now. It's hilarious. Uh, you know, and and. Stephen was thrown out of high school as well, as, you know, so it was, we were both on the same path. So we, we had a bit of a role model that what we were doing wasn't totally and absolutely weird. It was like your doppelganger. Exactly. You know, except, you know, like he came from a very different class of people. Like his father was one of the trustees at the Met <laughs> and, uh, 
my parents broke up when I was 10, but my father, my father had business dealings with a gentleman named Gambino. So uh, basically. Right, yeah. Well, you were from Staten Island. I was so from it, Staten Island. What it, else it all is there to sense. do? You know? Right. Exactly. <laughs> That's, that, that may be an inside New York joke, but. Anyway. Exactly. Hey, look, <laughs> look it up on the internet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so basically I did that and. Uh, one of one of the people who I became friends with, who helped me a lot, uh, particularly with one conversation, was Dan Arbus, and we were both doing the same issue of Esquire, and we wound up at the offices of Esquire, you know, at the same time by happenstance. And I, I'd met her through Bruce Davidson before, so we sort of knew slightly who each other were. But she took me aside. I think we had coffee afterwards. Uh, after whatever we had to do at the at the offices. And she gave me some really good advice, which related to what what her life. She said, John, you know, like I really like your work, you know, very kind and everything. And she said, but one of the things that I regret the most, which she regretted the most, was basically that she had made pictures that other people wanted her to make as opposed to her own early on mm-hmm. that it took that she didn't really mm-hmm. you know listen to totally listen to her own voice until a bit later in life and she said you know you're too young to have these guys these esquire guys and everything telling you what to do it's going to ruin you mm-hmm. and it was it was a voice basically something said you know literally that it's sort of been rumbling around in my head that I was I, one I was this kid so I was an outsider to everything everything felt weird but it was like it didn't feel like right somehow but there there was no art scene I mean there I mean, one of the things there was nothing going on that had any other possibility people made their commercial work and they what they would say is I also have some personal work right you know mm-hmm. you know but that didn't mean there was any venue the venue and the joke was you took your pictures up to Edward Station at MoMA. He, if he liked your work, he would buy one for $35, ask you to donate three others, and basically you needed to live on the $35 for the rest of your life. Right. <laughs> you know, that, 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 that was it. That was the end of the story. And by happenstance, and this is too complex to go on, but basically I discovered through a friend and a story in the New York Times, a friend who had gone to Black Mountain College. And he just, we were sitting, drinking wine in his uh, place one night. And he just said, you know, like, John, like you're, he was a very literate man. Uh, and he owned a bookstore in Greenwich Village. And he just said, you know, John, you're illiterate. I mean, you basically have almost never read anything. And I get it, mm-hmm. but, you know, like, and I get it why you're not adapted to school, but Black Mountain would have been perfect for you, which dissolved long before, you know. And there was a story in the back of the front section of the New York Times on a school in Washington, D.C. that was a Ford Foundation project to develop uh, alternative education called Walden School. And Nick... Mm-hmm. Uh, basically made me, uh, forced me, and mostly wrote it himself, a letter to Walden School. We somehow figured out how to, an address, I don't know how we did that, I can't remember, that this sounded perfect for me. 
And uh, a man named Alex Rode started this brilliant man. And there, were, there was no real alternate education for kids, that, high school kids, basically, that didn't fit anywhere. Mm-hmm. And he was trying to develop that. He wrote back and said, you know, obviously, it was a very nice letter because Nick had written most of it and he was a brilliant writer. So it was like I'd impressed him with something I really couldn't do. But he, he, said he came to New York and he said, I'm coming to New York. Eric, I'd like to meet you. So basically, I met him. And I, you know, I, my only calling card was my photographs, so a little 8 by 10 box of photographs. And he looked through five or six of them and said, these are the best pictures I've seen since Robert Frank's Americans. Wow. One, civ- civilians didn't know Robert Frank's Americans. Right. You know, so that impressed mm-hmm. the hell out of me. And, and oh, and then, you know, that, and he said, you're in school. And being a New York boy, that immediately made me think, ah, this is a scam. (laughs) Like, I'm being hustled somehow or other. But he said, come down to Washington. Uh, You know, you can't come in this semester. You know, you come in next semester. And, you know, sit in, see if you like it and everything. And I came down to Washington. And to my great, absolute shock, because like all my friends were adults at that point in time, my my girlfriend was like, you know, 10 years older than I was. And uh, basically, there was this room and there were, oh, the school was five teachers and 15 students. Too, Amazing. Way, yeah. it, was, it was really a research project to try to find a system that could be replicated uh, elsewhere mm-hmm. as well. And to my great shock, there were 15 kids just like me. And it was like, it took me a, you know, like quite a while to get over the fact that I wasn't, you know, like, I wasn't that unique, right, thank right, you. Right, I understand. <laughs> and that that moved me down to Washington. I, I, I wound up being a lot easier to live here than it was in New York. I moved out of home when I was, like, 16 or 17. So I moved to Washington, and I got incredibly lazy because I've stayed here all these years. You know, like, obviously... As a photographer, I travel a lot. So, you know, like I see a lot of other things, but I still live relatively close to the original apartment or the second apartment I had in Washington here, like within like seven or eight blocks of it. And uh, it's just worked. And what other schooling did you have after that? Like, you know, in the arts? Uh, None. Uh, well, one of the things that went on is that uh, there were feeder schools that wanted Walden graduates. I was solicited mm-hmm. by Harvard and Princeton. And uh, basically, uh, I, I was of two minds. Of uh, Harvard was the, was the place that was most interesting because their given was that if I could make it through the first year, I could take uh, photography I didn't need and they don't really Back then, they didn't have much of a program, but Ricky Leacock uh, at MIT had an adjacent program that was connected in in filmmaking. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, that's the next thing I should know about. Mm -hmm. But with Walden, they had adapted to my writing difficulties and everything. I kept thinking, I've finally gotten this under control and don't feel like I'm an utter idiot. If I, even with all the stuff at Harvard. If I go back there, it's going to be the same problem all over again. And mm-hmm. I put it off for a year. And then the next year, uh, I just told them I wasn't going to go. 
Yeah, and so basically that's where my education ended uh, with with Walton, and there was there was nothing to learn. Particularly, I mean, after coming out of New York, I mean, I mean, like at, at sixteen and seventeen, I was hanging around with Saul Lewitt and you know Eva Hesse and Carl Andre and Hollis Frampton and such. You know, like basically the art scene in Washington seemed pathetic to me. <laughs> so how do you? I mean. It seems like The Pond, which is, of course, the body of work you're most well known mm -hmm. for and which is, you know, really, it's, you know, not hyperbole to say it's an iconic body of work, photo book. When did that happen? Like, so you're in D.C., you've gone to this wonderful school. How much later do you do The Pond? In between what I've described to you, I met a curator here, Walter Hopps who is a brilliant uh, curator who uh, left the Pasadena Museum of Art and come to the Institute for Policy Studies, a left-wing think tank that a man named Phil Stern had started in Washington. Uh, Walter, if people don't know him, he basically, when he was 28 years old, he did the first Marcel Duchamp retrospective at Pasadena. He's an utterly brilliant, brilliant man. And again, through a story that's too long to, it's tedious. He wound up seeing some of my pictures and putting it in a show. So the summer group show, he had become director of the Washington Gallery of Modern Art, another thing that Mr. Stern had started and his wife, Lenny. Through a friend, giving my friend some pictures to show to Walter, and Walter invited me to come by the gallery, and I came in the door, and my pictures were the first photographs in this group show, and no one had told me we were going to put it up. And Walter uh, and I became close friends for the next 10 or so years. He said, look, one of the things that I think is really important is all all of artistic practice in America should not be focused on New York. If it's at all possible, if I make it possible for you to stay in Washington economically, will you not move back to New York? And I said, yes, because wow. I, and what he did, he threw his contacts and everything. I, I bought a, a four by five speed graphic and learned how to photograph four by five transparencies of artwork. Mm -hmm. Very non, non-vision oriented work, very technically oriented. Oh, right. One, one thing I should draw back to coming down to, to Walden and after Arbus talking to me too, is that at that point I decided I was, when I came to Walden, I was not going to photograph anything that was outside of my actual life. Mm -hmm. Basically, that was sort of the message that I had in my head and Arbus had reiterated that I was mm -hmm. basically going to make quote-unquote personal work and nothing else. Yeah, that's a big decision, a big parameter, which is yeah. important. Parameters are so important, and that's why I'm using that word and underlining this. I think that's incredibly, you know, that's like one of those things that I don't know if you realized at the moment or it's sort of in retrospect, but it's like, wow career-defining, right? Like, yeah. Or the word career is, is clumsy, but your artistic practice defining. It, it, was, it was survival. It was like, I need, one, what photographs actually do. You know, one of the things they do is they give you a vision of at least your subjective sense of what's really true 
in a scene you're seeing in front of you. Mm -hmm. You know, and I needed that reinforcement of this alternative life. This kid that didn't didn't really fit anywhere comfortably uh, needed to keep reinforcing that. I mean, that's why I mean, photography saved my life. It was that simple. Yeah. It wasn't a choice to go to school. It wasn't a practical thing. It was like, oh, especially where I come from, you couldn't quite believe what anybody told you. But if I could, if I saw it and I had a picture of it, it actually was real. It was like reinforcing a reality that was my reality rather than what I was raised in. On Staten Island, I never felt that I even slightly fit in anywhere. Mm -hmm. You know, and when you're this adrift child, failing all your courses except mathematics. By the way, I, I can do mathematics in my sleep. So basically, I would get 100% on advanced mathematics and high, high school mathematics. So I was this weird child that the public school system had no idea what to do with. Mm -hmm. so, so I can relate, by the way. Oh, good. <laughs> All right. <laughs> hey, another weird child. Hey, here we go. <laughs> but, you know, so, yep. you know, so I stayed in Washington. And, oh, and through the Washington Gallery of Modern Art, they, this is actually a semi-funny story in the, my lack of understanding of how the art world might work, is that they had a uh, workshop for artists. They, they had bought a, a row house building. They had three photographers, Joe Cameron and Mark Power, Washington photographers, and they invited me to be part of the workshop, which was a dark room I could use and everything. It was sort of a technical place and sort of a meeting place. And we had the sculptor who's died since, Ann Truitt was there. So, and what arrived in the mail was his check for a couple thousand dollars. And I looked at it and it was like from the Washington Tower. And I brought it back to return it because there had been a mistake. Uh -huh. And Walter had to explain to me what a grant was, <laughs> which seemed like a real scam to me. Like, hey, I got money for not doing anything. Hey, I like this. <laughs> There's that suspicious nature again. You know, how often do I get these checks? <laughs> you know, like, is this weekly or monthly? Or, you know. <laughs> but it, it really was unknown to me. I mean, I thought, you know, like, you know, they, they, they're going to want the money back, so I better bring it back now. <laughs> and as this happened, you know, the scene evolved, you know, around me. All of a sudden, there was Whitkin Gallery in New York, and there was, you know, there was some sense that actually photography could be shown in art galleries and appreciated. Mm -hmm. And I wound up with first a, a gallery, um, which you probably have not heard, Washington Gallery, um, uh, Jefferson Place Gallery, which had, had been the gallery of like Kenneth Nolan and the color Washington Color School people and everything, mm -hmm. a woman named Nesta Dorrance. And she showed my work. And then uh, the gallery sort of was was ending when I, you know, just by age and economics. And I wound up being represented by Harry Lunn, who, uh, Lunn Gallery. Yeah, I know, yeah. And Harry really invented the business aspect of fine art yeah. photography. 
Yeah, very, very important figure in our world. Exactly. You know, sort of complex man, let's put it that way kindly. But at the same time, uh, he knew how to run a network. <laughs> Since he was ex-CIA. And uh, just when I was thinking, all right, now is the time. I have to move back to New York. I have to get you know, a gallery in New York. This is the, this is the moment. I mean, this is what, what graduate photography students want to kill me for. In one week, I got two letters and and Harry Lund coming to me and saying, you know, this relatively new gallery, light gallery, would like to represent you. And the two letters, one were Ileana Sonnabend and Leo Costelli, all inviting wow. me to come up and that they were interested in showing my, possibly showing my work. And it was like, oh, I don't have to move to New York now. <laughs> That's done. Uh, and I wound up with being with Leo Costelli for just about 15 years, I think. Wow, it's amazing, yeah. And and miscellaneous terrifying experiences, like my first show at Costelli at 77th Street was with Jasper Johns. I mean, you know, like, this is... Oh, that's incredible, yeah. And Jasper was very kind and nice and everything, and obviously all of his paintings had sold for whatever, at that point, considered astronomical, but considered mm-hmm. starter art prices now. Mm-hmm. You know, and everybody came, too. You know, everybody, you know, like every artist, he had done a show in like seven years the whole art world came to my opening I mean, right you know, sure that was terrifying woody, woody allen and diane keaton bought picture you know it was like like all right i can right. live with this i like this <laughs> but i and was what terrified work was that that Costello um, was showing it was sort of a let's put it this way looking back as you do i wish i had the sense that i have now back then. It seemed to be a scattered of just pictures. They had no real Mm -hmm. 35 millimeter. Actually, what had happened is that, um, let's back up a little. One of the things that happened is that Walter Hopps and his deputy in Washington was a man named Hal Glicksman, set up a blind date, if you will. He said to me, because I was going to go to the West Coast. I was, I'd gotten a small grant from National Endowment from the Arts, uh, a project grant, that to travel, you know, to do the Robert Frank thing. I'm going to travel across the country and take mm-hmm. pictures, blah, blah, blah. You know, but uh, if I was going to the West Coast, there was only one photographer I had to meet. That was Louis Baltz. And they well, told Louis the same thing if he came to the East. So basically, we were set, and I wound up out in Pasadena, actually, uh, staying at Walter's house, uh, sharing with Bruce Nauman. And basically, um, they were right. I mean, Lewis and I became best of friends, you know, until his death, you know, relatively recently. Mm -hmm. And uh, we really, hopefully, hopefully from my end, I did a little bit, but I certainly can say that Lewis really helped me think and educated me about thinking about pictures in a way that I hadn't before, but seemed natural once once we started sort of talking and dealing with it. So there was a show at Baltimore Museum called 14 American Photographers. And it, it, it started out as being a uh, San Paolo Biennale representation of America. And it was to uh, Walker Evans... And the people that sort of come out of that aesthetic. And it mm-hmm. sort of got, somehow it got, a man named Renato Danese, the director of the museum, was the curator of it. 
And I'd been asked to be in it, and uh, Lewis and Eggleston and Bob Adams and, you know, the the crew, the, you know. <laughs> uh-huh, yep. Uh, but the crew that nobody knew really existed very much. And the, somehow the, the, the Biennale thing fell apart uh, logistically or whatever. And it wound up being a show that traveled around America. And Lewis, who was, was, I believe, the first photographer shown at Castelli, was already there. And he brought the catalog to Leo and basically said, you know, these are the the folks. Right. You know, like, this is the living photographers, you know, Friedlander and Winogrand. And Leo sort of used it as a, a wish list. He picked the stuff that made some degree of sense to him and everything and asked us to come. So basically that introduction came via Lewis, but through Castelli. Right. So that's how that happened in any case. It's interesting because you and Lewis, you know, in some ways you're observing the world in a similar way, not the big grand scenes or big Mm -hmm. grand moments, but you're, aesthetic is so different. You're very yin and yang. And so it must have been a really beautiful relationship. I mean, there's no reason to to hang around people that reinforce your own tics, if you will, stylistic Mm -hmm. tics and everything. It was the kind of intensity that we both tried to put and rigor into what we were doing. And Lewis had Lewis had things that I didn't have, and hopefully I had things that he didn't have that helped us both. Still to this day, I do believe Lewis is the smartest person I've met in this medium. Mm -hmm. You know, so it was very invigorating. We had great times in different places around the world. (laughs) So let's let's get into some specifics. Um, Tell me about the genesis of for the idea for the pond. Do you remember the moment when you had the idea for the project? How, how did that come about? Well, one of the things, it's, it's actually technically my second book, uh, only in that one of the things, I remember Leo Costelli looking at me very sadly, and he said, John, why is photography so inexpensive? <laughs> <You know? laughs> I mean, obviously, he was shocked that you could, yeah, I forget what we were charging, like $250 a piece was like lunch money for what Leo right. was doing, obviously. Right. Yeah. You know, so they were trying to develop, uh, we, we were, by the way, in... A market, yeah. In, in graphics, as, as Leo's gallery worked, anything that was a multiple... So the collectors understood that there was more than one of these was sold under graphics that uh, his wife, Twani Costelli, uh, sort of handled day to day and everything. So under that, which is like Jasper John's lithographs and all of the, yep. the stuff that you would expect. So they were trying to figure out how to market it. So they proposed, right. could I, was there some kind of addition I could bring out? So I did a book called Gardens, which is, this, you know, original prints, I, I decided, like, well, let's kind of start where photography starts, which is the the 19th century albums. Mm-hmm. Original prints uh, mounted on board. It's like a Walter Hopps did a curated text of every interesting reference to the idea of gardens, starting with Pliny the Elder and ending with the year I'm born with uh, Ezra Pound. 
It's all letter-pressed. It's a two Moroccan goat hide binding by the master binder, Don Etherington at the Library of Congress, edition of 25. So basically, we made something that there was absolutely no market for. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, you know, like MoMA got one. Uh, I mean, it was all institutions. The V&A, Bibliotech National, National Gallery of uh, Australia has one for some reason. You know, so I think we sold about, out of the edition of 25, we sold about five or six. And we didn't bind them all. The binding was incredibly expensive. So basically, we bound whatever, 10 copies or whatever out of it, and then kept everything else. After those sold, we would bind the next ones, and it never sold. But the last two copies that I have that are bound and everything, I sold one of them at Perry Photo a few years for $85,000. So, you know. Uh, nice. You know, it was sort of it's like, a long game. Yeah, you know, just yeah, exactly. You know, oh, somebody finally got it. What is it? Thirty years later, I got it. Um, it is though. It really is a long game. You know. Mm. So all right. So but back to the pond. The book thing. Lewis had the book first. He had new industrial parks, and we talked a lot about that. And you know, like what his thinking was in it, how, what he wanted to have happen with it. Uh, and pretty much that book, great book and everything, but he pretty much gave away at least half of them. I mean, if, everywhere he would go or with a collector and everything, he wound up giving, it was like a calling card. Right. You know, it was like hardly any, distrib- I think Light Impressions distributed it. Mm-hmm. But one of the things about books, especially like when I'm 14 and with Lizette and everything, one of the great uh, gifts that I got, and I knew all these photographers and everything, I would ask them what books I should get. You know, I'm trying to learn. And Lizette, right. uh, actually, what what I asked, a very 14-year-old question to Lizette. Miss Modell, and, you know, semi-terrified of her, uh, you know, like, basically, <laughs> you know, like, who is the greatest photographer who ever lived? <laughs> you know, I, I wanted to get to the heart of it. And she said, mm-hmm. darling, which she always called people. And basically, I was also Lizette's friend till the, literally had dinner with her a week before she died. You know, she, wonderful, wonderful, brilliant person. But she said, darling, you really shouldn't think like that. Arts aren't competitive in that way. And then she looked at me. She, she was my ultimate teacher. She knew exactly how to cut to the heart. But there is someone. His name is Eugene Age. And then she wow. got she knew how to get me. But darling, you wouldn't understand him. So of course that immediately wow. sent me. It, there was a and that the only Age book that existed was published in about nineteen twenty nine. It's the, the original uh, thing that Bernice Abbott put together. And mm-hmm. the American publisher was a great art bookstore on Lexington Avenue called Y. And of course, it had sold so well. That when in the 60s I'm going there, they still can find me a new copy in the basement <laughs> for 10 bucks. And, of Amazing. course, Lizette's right. Little brown pictures of Paris mean nothing to a kid trying to learn how to street shoot on the streets of New York. But Bruce Davidson recommended The Americans by Robert Frank, which made a lot more sense to me. It looked like the mm-hmm. world I was in. And somebody else recommended American Photographs by Walker Evans. So those are my first mm-hmm. three mm-hmm. photo books, which is sort of a good Pre- place pretty to good. start. Yep. When I could, I didn't have that much money. I would pick up 
books and everything that that was my access in more than shows i mean there weren't that many shows i mean in new york well, that's the way it is today i mean you know even if there are a lot of shows yeah in new york and they're not by the way <laughs> photography you know is still i mean it's had some moments of more glory so to speak but for the most part there's not been a huge yeah change in the way the world understands you know fine art photography but there certainly are not shows on a regular basis all around the world or all around to yeah. say the United States and so it's books 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 that's how people yeah. learn so i don't think anything's changed in that regard so basically i thought look what i need to do is do something like new industrial party like basically have a book that actually pe people can get mm -hmm. and you know and in america particularly and i saw lewis's difficulty in getting his book out and everything so there mm -hmm. you know i made a choice of the many publishers that were open to an american photographer it was either aperture aperture or aperture mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yep. you know, you know, so um and thank god for them boy i mean yeah I mean, grateful grateful so yeah. i started thinking about what i wanted to do you know like what what's possible first book is a real set of decisions it sort of plants the stake if you will in the ground actually something i've done just recently a pandemic and you know like too much time at home routine i put together actually the book uh which is called ornamentals now of the work that i was going to do as the first book that i sort of took a left turn from to do the pond mm -hmm. you know i sort of started doing one set of things but and i don't remember how this thought came into my head one of the things you do when especially back then you look at how photographs relate to each other and how a context is set and a lot of the sort of connecting parts of connecting one photograph to another which which is a very unnatural thing by the way was sort of the the life magazine photojournalist thing it's all it's almost a cartoon strip kind of sequencing the mm -hmm. country doctor gets up in the morning has his coffee walks down the road you know it, it was very very simplistic i mean literally like cartoon panels and that right. that seemed very uninteresting but the fact that there was this potential for narrative consistently kept coming back to me. And then the idea is, well, one of the things that I don't think has ever been done is narrative landscape. Mm -hmm. Let's think about that. And the idea of something very, very simple, that you take a step off of the pavement into this middle land in, you know, like not... Mm -hmm. In, in no way bucolic kind of mid-range nature <laughs> mm -hmm. and then you you walk through it and you wind up getting back home let's just make a very very simple story but elaborate on it in complex ways that seemed a cohesive idea i didn't know if i could do it i didn't know if if, if i did it if it would be of any interest but i would try to do that and it, I think the shooting mm -hmm. took about two and a half years or so to get, you know, something that was satisfying. And then I had something. I had something, you know, in mind. And uh, 
there is a woman at Aperture, Carol Kazmarek, who was wonderful, wonderful person. She was the one that you went to if you had something interesting, and she would figure out a way to get it, getting around Michael Hoffman. Right. So he was the head of Aperture at the time. Book. Yeah. <laughs> And Michael was sort of using Aperture for the care and feeding of Michael Hoffman. So, and, you know, all he wanted to do was Paul Strand books. So, you know, it was, and minor white books. So, and uh, actually the deluxe edition of the, uh, the pond of the recent reprint of it comes with a print and it comes with a copy of the letter <laughs> of Aperture rejecting the pond. <laughs> Which you took a bit to get Leslie to put in. But I said, but hey, Leslie, you did it. <laughs> Leslie's a close friend of mine, so I can, I'm hearing her, her voice <laughs> in my head. Let me just go back a second. Because you said, you know, Michael Hoffman wasn't interested and, and he was, you know, preoccupied. with Paul Strand was obviously, a, not obviously, but Paul Strand is a big part of Aperture. And I think they, they have the archive, I think. And it's actually the second photo book I ever got was... Aperture's Paul Strand book after Aperture's Dorothea Lang book. So do you think that there were people, and Michael may be one of them, I don't know, but who didn't understand the language, the visual language that you were using? Because at that point, there weren't a ton of photographers using the language that you used, the visual language that you used in the pond. You know, some people at Aperture got it, but do you think there was just simply a disconnect in there or that they were worried that the general public wouldn't understand this language? Oh, it didn't sell at all. I mean, one thing that got Aperture all excited is the pond got reviewed in People magazine. And I looked at it and said, there's no cross-reference between the audience for People magazine and anyone who would buy this book, you know. Yeah, that is odd. So, you know, like I did a uh, book signing at ICP. They set up for me and one person came. I mean, basically, you couldn't give them away. I I mean, Michael's whole thing was less aesthetic and more had to do with money, which, which being the head of Aperture to keep it going and everything... That's not totally unreasonable. He basically wanted to take no risks. And, you know, the the fact that Aperture, as a nonprofit publisher, which was almost unheard of except for university presses, and I I think they were, you know, like challenged and audited like five or six times and everything because it was so unprecedented. And Michael kept that going to his credit. But at the same time, I don't think he had an, an aesthetic agenda at all. And basically, it allowed me to totally design with a friend in Berlin, Gabriele Gertz, who's now become sort of a major designer in in, uh, Amsterdam and uh, head of graphic design in Kassel, Germany and everything. She and I designed the book together. And I mean, my thing of making everything personal and everything, I wasn't going to let anybody else... Mm -hmm you know, get involved with the aesthetics of what I was doing. You're a prolific, I mean, you, you put out a tremendous amount of books. I mean, is is and, this... <laughs> in no relation to demand, by the but way. Is, the, <laughs> is this the point at which you're, I mean, are you just loving this process and thinking, I'm, I'm going to dedicate myself to making photo books, which you've done? I mean, are you are you sort of... Getting because well, obviously you have to love something, right? I mean, if you're going to put out as many books as you've done, I, I would assume yeah. you love the process. 
Somewhat. It always seems like it'll be more fun until I get involved in it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, te the technical stuff and everything is obviously, you know, like do doing stuff that I've done, you know, in the last few years with Steidl, it, it makes it much easier because basically, I mean, Garrett is utterly unique in that he is both the publisher and the printer. You right. know, so it's... It, everything's and also <laughs> to put it mildly, Garrett's fairly good at the printing stuff. Yeah, he is. You know, and now I've digressed enough. What were you asking? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, that I liked it. All right, yeah. Well, well, one of the things I really did not like or find intellectually interesting the aesthetic of the medium of of art photography. You know, in the 80s, 70s and 80s, it was this sort of Museum of Modern Art masterpiece, single image. I mean, in truth, having been raised sort of in the contemporary art world in New York, I found you know, like the dialogue about the medium fairly dumb. The, the only voice that seemed to have any gravity to it, and even with his very, very limited sense of what he wanted, was John Sarkowski. Mm-hmm. Basically, nobody else had an interesting take on what... I mean, how can you take a medium seriously that reveres Yosef Karsh and Ansel Adams? I mean, come on. I mean, it's crap. You know, Ansel always just wanted to be Edward Weston, and Karsh is just a very glossy studio photographer. And that sort of discouraged me. But with books, not only do you put the pictures together and have them amplify each other so that they if, if it's done correctly they get a greater strength than the floating individually mm -hmm. on their own you get to set the context with each book of what's being asked of the viewer this is what we're doing you just said even with his limited sense of what he liked talking about john sarkowski who was the head of yeah photography at moma for many many years yeah. and considered sort of a giant and hugely influential. Tell me what you meant by even with his limited sense of... Oh, well, you know, John hated modern art. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I remember going up to see him for something, and there was a Bernard and Hillebescher show of uh, Pennsylvania coal tipples. So I, I looked at the show, and uh, I thought it was wonderful and everything. When I came up to see John, it's just John, a wonderful show. And everything, and he, he had his pipe, which he had. He sort of chomped down, and he said, "It's the sculpture department." <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's like he didn't approve of this. That's not that outside, though. That work is not really that outside of what John liked, though, right? I mean, because... but it was enough outside that it really annoyed him. Uh -huh. <laughs> that it existed in the museum and it was photographs. And you know, obviously, he'd probably heard from other people how wonderful, quote, his show was. And it was a show that he had, you know, deferred doing. Is there other work that you would have liked to have seen John champion more? Well, let's put it this way. He didn't particularly champion Lewis Baltz's work. Mm -hmm. Lewis always, he brought up, uh, I think, I think it was initially the tract home portfolio. It may have been in industrial parts. I I don't remember anymore. So John had picked out certain pictures that he wanted for MoMA for that, and Lewis had to inform him that he that either he had to take all of them because it was 
context mm-hmm. that he was interested. Mm-hmm. He was interested in the issues right. more than the individual objects. Mm-hmm. And it was really a battle. I mean, eventually they took it, but John gave them all back to him. I mean, and as far as I know, during John's tenure, I don't think he ever showed Lewis's work. Mm-hmm. John had had certain things. I mean, you know, obviously he has some great achievements. And speaking about his thoughtfulness about a kind of photography, he'd done a history of photography show. And again, I was there for some reason. And he asked me how much I liked it. And I said, I like the 19th century part of it better. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said, yeah, I like the 19th century better as well. You know, hmm. uh, it was like that's the aesthetic that he most felt comfortable in. I mean, and also like the great work he did with Age and, you know, literally probably discovering in the in the major field, uh, Dean Arbus, you know, I mean, it, it, I mean, you know, and you know, Bill Eggleston and, you know, like, oh, all this stuff. He deserves an immense amount of credit, but he also missed a lot. Mm-hmm. Let's put it this way. Can you ever picture... John Sertkowski warming up to Jeff Wall. <laughs> no, it ain't gonna happen. But I, I haven't warmed up to Jeff Wall, but I have a lot of respect for him. And there's a lot of artists who don't, you know, whose work doesn't really move me personally, yeah. but that I really respect. But I do think it's tricky because as a curator, you know, you do your best work, whatever you're doing, if you really feel passion towards it. If you, mm-hmm. if it really moves you, if you really get it, I mean, I've had this too. It's very difficult to do your best work curating, whether it's a show or a book or whatever, if you don't have a real feel for something. And oh, exactly. Yeah, no. I'm, I mean, I'm, you not, do, I'm not defending I mean, John, the, the, by the way. I'm just, I'm just. It, this is just fascinating to me. And and as someone who doesn't really feel Jeff's work, but does have great respect for it, which is how I feel about a lot of artists, right? I really respect, well, but let, I don't necessarily feel it in my my bones. In my sense, it's it's not John's fault. It's the field's fault that basically it did not engender another player with a different take of equal degree of seriousness and intelligence. Mm-hmm. There was nobody else out there. Right. Everything else was sort of feely, touchy nonsense. I have questions for you, but is there any... I don't want you to get off and feel like we didn't talk about the Berlin work or... Well, let, let me do a quick thing on the, on the Berlin book, the Berlin in the Time of the Wall. One of the things I'm very interested in, I have a decent library. And one of the interesting things was that um, Iko Hozoi, I have a lot of Japan books, mm-hmm. did Ordeal of Roses, an original edition. One of the interesting things that he did that, that I don't think many people are aware of, he had four different designers design different books around that particular body of work. And one of the things that I know Gerhard Steidel always wanted to do, he literally got involved with me after seeing a PDF of the Berlin book, but the Berlin book was already in production, so he never got to do it. I'm going to suggest to him, which he may or may not do, it's a, they're, probably the greatest uh, book designer alive at the moment is a woman in the Netherlands, uh, Irma Boom. And to basically give her that book and say, do whatever you want mm-hmm. that isn't this and do another edition with, since it's been out of print for a mm-hmm. while, it costs hundreds of dollars. 
to do that and to to see what looks like and give her absolutely carte blanche. Whatever she does, I want to do. Well, it's interesting because I was going to ask you how fixed books are. So, you know, could you sit down today and re-edit some of your iconic books? You know, how much do you know to be really true in the sequencing and in the selection? One of the things that happens, I think, I think it happens to everybody, but nobody speaks about it. You wind up having one or two pictures in the best edit annoy you and wish you'd taken them mm-hmm. out. <laughs> right, of course. I, I always have that. You know, like, God, you should you just should have taken that out. You know, like, more than putting anything. I mean, the books become, for me at least, kind of solid events that I have no particular inclination to change at mm-hmm. all once, once they're done. Outside of this experiment with Berlin, I have no inclination to do that, anything I've done for good or ill. Yeah, no, I think that's good. I think it's good to be settled and not be tormented by. Mm. But I heard a you did this little film for for Steidel. I think it was a promotion for the trilogy of um, books, the nicknames of citizens, yeah. Jack Wilson's Waltz, and Should Nature Change. And at at the end of this little promo thing, you, you just said something I I love, but I want to ask you about it. You said if you were talking to students now, what you'd say is, I have no idea what I'm doing anymore, and I'm totally sure of it, and that's how it works. Exactly. Explain that. I love it, I think, but explain it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, one thing I I want to correct, too, it's actually not a trilogy. There are three more books in the series. There's six. Everything got derailed by the pandemic. and Yeah, I was wondering about that because I saw, you can see on the Steidl website that there's more coming and right okay yep i know it's going to be in a clamshell or not a clamshell but i know it's going to be in some like beautiful box at some point like what i asked garrett garrett keeps saying do you want a slipcase and everything no yes john no i want people i want people to feel totally free to buy just one well they can do both look put me on with garrett we'll work this out there should be both options I mean, I mean, Gerhard says we are going to do this and looks at me with that Gerhard look. We will do it. But he knows you must what have I want the Henry Wessel slipcase collection. It's mm. so fantastic. It's it's. Yeah, but they weigh too much. I mean, yes, I've got all those Angleton things. They weigh with weigh it. it. It doubles as, <laughs> as, as, as a weapon or you can, you know, a door, a door <laughs> stop or something. I don't know. It, but... It's good to flatten prints. You know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Everything in this day and age should have multiple uses. So I think, I think. <laughs> exactly. So, but, so back, back yeah, to the comments. So I'm going to say it again. I have case. no idea what I'm doing anymore. And I'm totally sure of it, and that's how it works. When I did a project, I finally hit a pertinent point. I've been photographing a long time. I did a, a project in Venice and actually in Marghera across the lagoon for a book called The Romance Industry. And at that point, something happened. It was like they were choosing some of the sites I would photograph and everything. But I knew exactly instinctually what needed to be done. Literally, I could see it finished before I was a quarter of the way Mm -hmm. into it. And it was like, oh, that's an interesting gift. And it worked out. I mean, basically, I knew exactly what I needed to have and how many days I needed to do it in. And then from then on, I just wander around 
and things seem to present themselves to me outside of my control. Mm-hmm. I mean, this sounds sort of, you know, feely touchy, uh, you know, kind no, of no. A mysticism. Sounds like you just have but a strong it's, foundation. It's gotten into my blood enough that I don't need to think about it anymore. And when I get the work back, it always looks like they're pictures that are better than I know how to make. Yeah. So why would I screw with that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, like, hey, I'll take the gift. Thank you. Thank you very much. I guess you 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 put you know enough dues in thirty years of yeah. dues in or whatever, and you get a gift back. You get a free gift. Well, that connects with <laughs> well, every thirty years you get a free gift. <laughs> that that connects with some of the books you shot. Some students, art students in Minnesota. And you said that you just shot on autopilot, and when you saw the contact sheets, you were stunned oh, yeah. by them, and you thought, "Take a hint, John. You should do more of this." Like they knew more than you did. The pictures knew more than you did. And that's what you're saying, I think, yeah. Exactly. That's the reason I started making pictures. Mm-hmm. The pictures knew more than I did. I mean, understand, I, I come from a different generation where there was no commercial potential, there was no career, there was no school, there was no need to verbally defend or support what you did. Why would you do it? if it didn't Mm. offer you something that you couldn't get anywhere else. Let's put it this way. I make objects of fascination. The fascination Mm -hmm. is mine, as well as hopefully the viewer. I've had a whole life. I've never had a job. I've done exactly what I wanted to do. I'm not the richest person, but I'm not the poorest person on earth. And uh, I won the bet. Well, John, thank you so much for spending time with me today and and getting into it all it's been really fun talking to you and and thank you for not asking the obvious question of what is the meaning of life which i was <laughs> terrified you were going to ask at 10 o'clock in the morning i like my guests i i would never do that <laughs> all right john thanks again right. and and be well take care thank you all right okay Bye-bye. bye Photo Work with Sasha Wolf is a production of the Photo Work Foundation. Executive producer is Sasha Wolf, and the associate producer is Taylor Selsback. The show is also produced and edited by me, Michael Chovendalton of Real Photo Show. Music is by J. Walter Hawks. If you like the show and wish to find out more about the foundation, please visit photowork.foundation and be sure to subscribe and review with all the stars on your listening platform.